Um, I hope this comes out the way I mean it to. Um, a lot of times in church, there's people who make it to church when they can, and people who are going to be in church unless they can't. I'm not trying to paint with any broad brush, but when you come out on a night like tonight, it encourages me. I know it's messy out there. I know it's whatever, and that's not against anyone who couldn't make it, but it's just it's encouragement to me. You know, if I had to just preach to Sean, I would, but it's nice preaching to the rest of you as well. Amen. You're a good guy. All right, so uh, we're going to be in Leviticus 4 tonight. We're going to pick back up in our study of the offerings at the beginning of Leviticus. I want to thank Pastor for filling in for me last week so that I could go to a concert that my daughter was singing in. Um, And Pastor, I will also thank him for reminding us, something we should already know, Christ fulfills all these offerings. If you were in Sunday school this morning, Mike made a pretty deep comment that correct theology can still get in the way of our relationship with God. It doesn't sound like it should be right, but if you were there, he explained, if we're so caught up in what the Bible says and knowing what it says and, oh, I know the answer to that and how do you not know that? And you might know a ton of good theology, but if you're not applying it to your life and seeing how God, why God put it in here in the first place, then what good is it? It's actually holding you back. Uh, We know that pride, knowledge puffs up. Uh, So having said that, I do want to grow in my knowledge of the offerings. I do want to understand them, but I never want to lose sight of the fact that they point us to Christ, that Christ fulfilled them, that we don't do them anymore because of Christ's perfect sacrifice. So, Pastor, thank you for that. But having said that, I admitted in my very first sermon of this series that I wasn't going to spend most of my time comparing those offerings to Christ's offerings. I admitted that that was something I already knew. I, I, was, I was comfortable in the understanding that Christ fulfilled them, and to my detriment, I kind of used that as an excuse of why I didn't have to study Leviticus. I almost treated like Leviticus wasn't as worthy of my time as some other books because Christ already fulfilled them, and that's my fault. That's my loss. My loss that I waited this much time to say, okay, let me really dive in to what the book of Leviticus offers. I said at the time, I wasn't going to compare Christ to the offerings, I was going to compare me to the offerer. Okay, the fact that Christ fulfilled these offerings doesn't negate the heart that God wanted from the offerers then, and how he still wants it from me. The circumstances that he wanted from his offerers then, and he still wants it from me. So, Pastor, I'm full of thanks today. I also thank Pastor for going over our seven common elements of each one of the five offerings. Right? If you've been here, you know that there's seven common ones and three distinct ones. And the seven common ones, I'm hoping, the teacher in me is hoping, that if we keep spiraling these, they, they don't have to go up on the board anymore. Right? None of these literally matter anymore. Okay? I'm not bringing a bull without blemish because I'm not bringing a bull. I'm not going to the entrance of the tent of meeting. There is no tent of meeting. But you better believe that what I do offer up to God, he still expects to be my best. That's what without blemish was. He still expects me to come to him in the way that he wants me to instead of doing things how I want, when I want. Back then, you didn't just drop a bull off and say, okay, priest, do what you do. No. You played a much bigger, you killed the animal. You laid your hands on the animal. You did a lot. And nowadays, I just thank you all for being here, but if that's all you do, there's more to giving God our time, talents, than just showing up and putting money in a plate. We have responsibility, and it is a shared responsibility. The priest had to play a role in these people's offerings. God wouldn't accept it if they didn't. 
And how many people nowadays treat church like it's a bonus or it's a, to be honest, I'm better off off just me and God. Just let, No, that's not what God wants. God wants you in a body sharing the responsibility of giving him honor. Um, I don't publicly display blood. I've never killed an animal to have the, But my life should publicly display the blood of Christ. That, that's what it was supposed to do. The blood in and of itself held no power. It was just some animal's blood. But it was symbolic of what Christ, God was doing in their life. And my life should be reflecting the same. We know that our prayers are called a sweet aroma to God. And we know that God will still accept offerings from the elder to the first person in church, from the oldest to the youngest. It doesn't matter. We should be encouraged that God accepts offerings from everyone, but then also challenged that he expects offerings from everyone. You don't get to sit there and say, glad I'm not a preacher or God would really... No. Whatever God called you to do, you're to be doing it. Okay? So those seven things are very relevant to us, even though they're not literally relevant and that's what we're going to continue to do today. We're going to look in um, Leviticus chapter 4. Okay, we're going to read all of chapter 4, and then we're just going to read a few verses in chapter 6. We've done that every week. We read a chapter that talks about an offering, and then we see the priest's role in that offering. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll stand and read God's Word. Lord, thank you so much. I, I don't know where this month has gone, but I know that... As I've prepared for these, and as I've been quite intimidated by them, and I've had so much to learn, that I believe you've just allowed me to absorb what I was meant to absorb. I have no doubt you will show me more in the future, but I thank you for now. Lord, I thank you that you've let me wrap my mind around something that I really never even tried to, and I do. Lord, from the bottom of my heart, I know that that was to my detriment, my loss, and I thank you that you're not only showing it to me, but giving me the honor of showing it uh, to everyone who's here. Lord, again, I thank you so much that your son fulfilled these offerings. I thank you that they only existed to point to him in the first place. Uh, Of course, I pray that you continue. I know you will. You will continue to open the eyes of the people you choose to that truth. Lord, if it doesn't point to your son, then it's not worth spending any time on. So, Lord, as I do my best to preach what Leviticus 4 actually says, Uh, Of course, we thank you for your son, for his sacrifice, for his perfection, for knowing that while we can still learn a lot from this, Lord, um, it has to draw us closer to your son. And I know that's what's going to happen, and I thank you in advance. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so if we could all stand in honor of reading God's word, we'll read all of chapter 4, and I'll be honest, this passage actually goes into chapter 5. But we're going to save that for next week. It's, kind of, it's called a hinge passage where it kind of connects to the two. So we're just going to stay in chapter 4, and then we'll turn to chapter 6, and I'll tell you what verses we are when we get there. But here we go. Leviticus chapter 4. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done, and does any one of them, If it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. He shall bring the bull to the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord and lay his hand on the head of the bull and kill the bull before the Lord. And the anointed priest shall take some of the blood of the bull and bring it into the tent of meeting. 
And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle part of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense before the Lord that is in the tent of meeting, and all the rest of the blood of the bull he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And all the fat of the bull of the sin offering he shall remove from it, the fat that covers the entrails, and all the fat that is on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them, at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys, just as these are taken from the ox of the sacrifice of the peace offerings. And the priest shall burn them on the altar of burnt offering. But the skin of the bull and all its flesh, with its head, its legs, its entrails, and its dung, all the rest of the bull, he shall carry outside the camp to a clean place, to the ash heap, and shall burn it up on a fire of wood. On the ash heap it shall be burned up. If the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally, and the thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly, and they do any one of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, and they realize their guilt, when the sin which they have committed becomes known, the assembly shall offer a bull from the herd for a sin offering, and bring it in front of the tent of meeting. And the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands on the head of the bull before the Lord, and the bull shall be killed before the Lord. Then the anointed priest shall bring some of the blood of the bull into the tent of meeting, and the, prince, the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle it seven times before the Lord in front of the veil. And he shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar that is in the tent of meeting before the Lord, and the rest of the blood he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And all its fat he shall take from it and burn on the altar. Thus shall he do with the bull. And he did with the bull of the sin offering, so shall he do with this. And the priest shall make atonement for them, and they shall be forgiven. And he shall carry the bull outside the camp and burn it up as he burned the first bull. It is the sin offering for the assembly. When a leader sins, doing unintentionally any one of all the things that by the commandments of the Lord his God ought not to be done, and realizes his guilt, or the sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring as his offering a goat, a male without blemish, and shall lay his, head on the ha his hand on the head of the goat and kill it in the place where they kill the burnt offering before the Lord. It is a sin offering. Then the priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering and pour out the rest of its blood at the base of the altar of burnt offering. And all its fat he shall burn on the altar like the fat of the sacrifice of peace offerings. So the priest shall make atonement for his sin and he shall be forgiven. If any one of the common people sins unintentionally in doing any one of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done and realizes his guilt, or the sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring for his offering a goat, a female without blemish, for his sin which he has committed. And he shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill the sin offering in the place of burnt offering. And the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering and pour out all the rest of its blood at the base of the altar. And all its fat he shall remove as the fat is removed from the peace offerings. And the priest shall burn it on the altar for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And the priest shall make atonement for him and he shall be forgiven. If he brings a lamb as his offering for a sin offering, he shall bring a female without blemish and lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill it for a sin offering in the place where they kill the burnt offering. 
Then the priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar and burnt of burnt offering and pour out all the rest of its blood at the base of the altar. And all its fat he shall remove as the fat of the lamb is removed from the sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall burn it on the altar on top of the Lord's food offerings. And the priest shall make atonement for him for the sin which he has committed and he shall be forgiven. Okay, now if you could just turn to chapter 6, it's a shorter passage. Verses 24 through 30. This is the priest's role in the sin offering. Leviticus 6, starting in verse 24. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of the sin offering. In the place where the burnt offering is killed, shall the sin offering be killed before the Lord. It is most holy. The priest who offers it for sin shall eat it. In a holy place it shall be eaten, in the court of the tent of meeting. Whatever touches its flesh shall be holy, and when any of its blood is splashed on a garment, you shall wash that on which it was splashed in a holy place. And the earthenware vessel in which it is boiled shall be broken. But if it is boiled in a bronze vessel, that shall be scoured and rinsed in water. Every male among the priests may eat of it. It is most holy. But no sin offering shall be eaten from which any of blood is brought into the tent of meeting to make atonement in the holy place. It shall be burned up with fire. Okay, you may be seated. I know that's a lot, but like I'll tell my students in school, I, you only get so much sympathy from me. Okay? We've been doing this week after week after week. So if this still sounds like the first time you're hearing it, you might want to ask yourself, where have you been the last three times? Right? Little by little, I get it. Some of us, it clicks a little quicker. Same thing in math. But at some point, I'm hoping that as we read these things, phrases like without blemish start popping off the page to you. Things like entrance at the tent of meeting. We're going to put those seven things up again. I'm going to go through them quickly. But was it without blemish? Yeah, six times. Six times. I'm sorry, was I supposed to say? Give me one second. Yeah, I guess I forgot to say my title. What is a sin offering? <laughs> it might be nice to, right? What is a sin offering? Well, there's seven things about it. I know we probably think we know what a sin offering is, but tuck that in the back of your mind because it's probably not quite what you think of it. But a sin offering was supposed to be without blemish, yes. Was it supposed to be brought to the entrance of the tent of meeting? I don't know if you caught it, but the answer is yes, comma. Yes, it was supposed to be brought to the... But unlike the other ones, it was also brought into the tent of meeting, all the way up to the veil of the sanctuary that separates the Holy of Holies. This is getting a lot deeper than most, than any of the other offerings did. Yes, there was personal responsibility and there was shared responsibility. We will talk more about that in a bit. Was there a public display of blood? Yeah. Oh my goodness, Yes. The first, in the burnt offering, remember, grain offerings didn't have one. There's no blood in grain. But in the burnt offering and the peace offering, the blood was just splashed on the side, symbolically, so that people could see the blood that had been shed. Oh, my goodness. If you, Sean talked about you use a motif, whatever word you used. I asked him, I said, please pick songs that talk about the blood. Because, oh, my goodness, does tonight talk about the blood. Yes, it's publicly displayed, but in a way way beyond any other offering. Sweet aroma? Yeah. Once. There are a lot of different circumstances. It's mentioned once. We'll talk about that in a bit. Various offerings? Yeah. But not just different animals, 
but also different situations. Up until now, it was kind of based on if you were rich enough to have a bowl, if you were rich enough to have a land. This is more situationally based than wealth-based. So definitely number seven will also be a unique topic. But those are the first seven things. Before we get into the three unique ones of my actual sermon, by far the most unique thing here is it's the first one that's not voluntary. That, that's not one of my outline points. But up until now, the burnt offering, the grain offering, this, the peace offering was always, if anyone offers, if they offer, and then God went on to say, they better do it this way if they want me to accept it. This one starts, if anyone sins, here's what they better do. Not if anyone sins and wants to. No, no, no. You sin, you better do this. So by far, that's not one of my sermon points, but we have hit a definite line in these offerings that the first three were voluntary based on what was laid on your heart, based on something you wanted to do for God, starting tonight and into next week. It's no, 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 no. It's not if you want to offer me something. It's if you've sinned, here's what you need to do. So um, just a, a little something that I found that I felt really illustrated this well, and it's not going to be a slide. I should have made it one, but I'll try to talk slow. The expression, a soothing aroma, frequently found in chapters one through three, that was the first three offerings, is seldom found in chapters four and five, which are the last two. The term atonement, on the other hand, is found but once in the first three chapters of Leviticus, but nine times in chapters 4 and 5. The terms guilt and guilty are not found at all in chapters 1 through 3, but each is found nine times in chapters 4 and 5. Chapters 1, and th 1 through 3 are more concerned with the process of the sacrifice, while chapters 4 through 6 have more emphasis on the product of the process, which is forgiveness. Now, I'm going to repeat that in a second. It goes on to say that forgiveness is not mentioned once in chapters 1 through 3, but eight times in chapters 4 and 5. So we're going to read that one more time. Chapters 1 through 3 are more concerned with the process of the sacrifice, while chapters 4 through 6 have more emphasis on the product of the process, forgiveness. Well, duh, John, it's a sin offering. I mean, of course, you give a sin offering because you want to be forgiven, right? Yes and no. I will agree that forgiveness is a product of the process. I will strongly disagree that forgiveness is the product of the process. Okay, you guys know how this works if you've been here before. The first thing we're going to talk about is the confession, right? We know that the confession of a burnt offering is submission. It has nothing to do with any specific sin. It's just, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I know I have no, no right to come into your presence. So I'm going to offer a burnt offering. The confession of a grain offering is dedication. Lord, you've given me so much. I just want to dedicate it back to you. And the confession of a peace offering isn't that you want peace or even that you have peace. It was gratitude. There were three types of peace offerings, and each one was just wanting to tell God how grateful you were for what he did. So we might think that the confession here is forgiveness, 
But to understand why I don't think it is, we first have to talk about what is what type of sin is being talked about here. Now I am going to see. Did anybody notice? Because it was mentioned four different times. I'm a math teacher. I'm used to this. Don't worry about it. Unintentional. Unintentional sin. It was mentioned four different times in this passage. And if that really means what we think unintentional means, we're all in trouble. Because how many of the sins that we commit are unintentional? How many times can we really say, oh my goodness, I, I didn't mean to do that. What just, no, we mean to do it, and then we feel bad about it, yes? Now, I did think of the time that Josiah, right, was going through the king's stuff, and he found the book of the law, and he's like, oh my goodness, God is so much, we're not keeping his law. That was truly unintentional. That can happen. As you grow in God's word, there can be times where you're doing things, and all of a sudden he speaks, and you're like, oh, I'm not supposed to do that. That's great. Those are the obvious unintentional sins. But the idea behind unintentional, you guys know how I love these little phrases. The idea behind unintentional isn't that you didn't know what you were doing, it's just that you didn't know what you were doing. You like that, right? It's when you get into your fight with your spouse, and the whole time you probably shouldn't be doing it, but you know you're right, and you're justifying it, and in your mind this is needed, and then later you realize, you know something, that, I can't believe I did that. You knew what you were doing. You knew what you were doing. But in the moment, you didn't really know what you were doing. And once God really spoke to your heart and you allowed him to, and you're like, oh my goodness, what did I do? We call that repentance. We call that conviction, yes? That's the heart of an unintentional sin. It's not just that they had no idea they were sinning, but oh man, I had no idea because we rationalized it or, or we, whatever it might be. Now, if I'm wrong about that, then I thank God I'm on this side of the cross. Because Christ has died for all my sins. I don't have to worry which ones are unintentional, which ones are intentional. But if I want to apply it to my heart, doesn't it kind of make sense that an intentional sin, I think of Hebrews 10, 26, right? We, we, I'm not going to get into this deep where it says, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. I know that's a deep passage. If you don't, then don't worry about it. But to me, it beautifully illustrates the common sense. If you're intentionally sinning and you don't care, you wouldn't want forgiveness in the first place, agreed? So an unintentional sin is one where God realizes our heart. He realizes that if we could do it again, we wouldn't. Lord, I wish I could just get, I wish you could forgive me here. He says he will. Okay, so there is, forgiveness is the goal. Len, I'm going to put you on the spot here. All you have to do is say yes or no, and I'll give you two tries, okay? Would you agree that if forgiveness is the ultimate goal, it implies you did something wrong? Would you ever ask for forgiveness if you didn't do anything wrong? Like not, you might like, you know, to keep the peace or something, but to really mean it, to really desire forgiveness, don't you have to do something wrong? And that's why I don't want to call the confession of a sin offering forgiveness 
Which one of you did Exodus 29? I don't remember. I just know it wasn't me. If you don't remember either, that's fine. But tell me if this passage sounds familiar. Exodus 29. For those of you who don't know, the Exodus comes before Leviticus. Got it? This happened already. God says, Thus you shall do to Aaron and to his sons, according to all that I have commanded you. Through seven days you shall ordain them, and every day you shall offer a bull as a sin offering for atonement. Also you shall purify the altar when you make atonement for it, and shall anoint it to consecrate it. Wait, John, didn't Leviticus just say that if a priest sins, he has to... Yeah, Leviticus 4 said if a priest sins, he has to offer up a sin offering. Exodus 29 was talking about his ordination process. Simply to become a priest, he had to offer up seven days' worth of sin offerings. Last I checked, wanting to become a priest is not a sin. It even says that they had to purify the altar. The altar sinned? Do you understand? A sin offering mostly referred to when you were sinning, but not always. You had to give a sin offering after childbirth. Now, some of you might say, yeah, tell me about it. I don't think childbirth is a sin. I think it's a beautiful thing. But you had, and you had to give a sin offering if you were healed from leprosy. What is going on here? Those things are sins? No. But all of them imply uncleanness. Sin, by far, implies uncleanness. A priest wanting to become, he had to be clean. A woman who had gone through that process needed to be clean. So that's why your, maybe even your Bible doesn't call it a sin offering. They call it a purification offering, which is actually such a better title for it. But I'm going to call it a sin offering because guess where most purifying I need to do? My areas of sins. Okay? So I'm going to call it a sin offering, but I'm going to say the confession of a sin offering is not forgiveness. I thank God for the forgiveness that comes along with it. Just like the confession of a peace offering wasn't peace, but we thank God for the peace that comes when we're in communion with him, thanking him, eating with him. The confession of a, of a sin offering is purification. It's a desire to grow from it. To not just say, Lord, please forgive me, I don't want to be in trouble anymore. But to say, Lord, I don't want this in my life. This doesn't honor you. This doesn't glorify your name. And, and that's my challenge to us right now. Is that our approach? When we, not, not to sin, sometimes we sin and don't even ask for forgiveness. But when we ask for forgiveness, is it because we don't want God mad at us? We don't want him to punish us. We don't want him to withhold blessings from us. We don't want... Or is it really just, Lord, I can't believe I did that. After everything you've done for me, I want to be better. I want to be who you made me to be. That's to be our heart. So this is a little bit long. I don't care. I was going to read some of it, but I'm going to read all of it. Listen to Psalm 51. You don't have to turn there. You can if you want. It's going to show up on the screen. And that is the introduction to Psalm 51. That is not me. You understand? When they wrote Psalm 51, they said it was important for us to know that these were the circumstances it was written in. To the choir master, a Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. I am not going to explain that. Just know it was sin. It was multiple sins. And listen to verse 1. David says, Have mercy on me, O God, 
According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. If it ended there, I would agree that David's desire was for forgiveness. Lord, I'm sorry. Can you please forgive me? Can you please show me mercy? I didn't mean it. Please don't kill me. Please don't punish me. Fill in the blank. But that was verse 1. Now listen to verses 2 through 19, and I hope I don't read them too quick. But tell me if this sounds like somebody who wants, just wants to be forgiven or wants to be washed clean, wants to be pure, wants to be who God created him to be. Verse 2. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit in me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Look, you can let Scripture speak to you how the Spirit tells it to speak to you, but it does not sound to me like David just wants to get out of trouble. It does not sound to me like David's just trying to, oh Lord, can you just let it slide on this one? I promise it won't happen again. He is begging, I was here, and sin brought me here. Oh, but Lord, I want to be here. Oh, the arrow was going the wrong way. He's setting the bar so much higher than forgiveness. I don't know if this is the best example, but it's the one I came up with. If I get a parking ticket and I want it to be forgiven, I go pay the parking ticket. I don't get any closer to the judge. I don't become a better person. I just don't want to be in more trouble, so I'll pay the stupid ticket. They'll forgive me. We'll go our separate ways. Oh my goodness, I hope that's not our approach to sin. I, let me take that back. I hope you at least have that approach to sin. If you're not even saying you're sorry, if you don't even want to be forgiven, well, then we've got a problem. The Bible does not account. Hebrews 10, 26. Boy, if you're sinning willfully after God showed you things, this doesn't bother you, it says right there, I don't know what else you're going to do. I'm hoping that's not us, but I do know, I know, especially in the heat of the moment. Oh, Lord, I'm so sorry I did that. Please forgive me, please. And it's really not with a desire to be pure or to grow. It's just you're kind of scared what's going to happen. You know, it's just like kids with their parents. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And you might mean it, but, but it's a selfish sorry. That is not the point of a sin offering. That wouldn't make any sense because then a woman giving childbirth shouldn't offer it and a person healed for it. It's a, Lord, 
you define clean. And right now, I, I'm not. According to your word, I am not clean. Now again, this is Old Testament. I thank Christ. Christ has done it all. I get it. But I still want to have David's heart. When God convicts me of a sin, I don't just want to say I'm sorry and know he'll forgive me. I want that to be something that only he can use to grow me even closer into the image of his son. So that's what I take um, as the confession. As our first C, what is the confession of a sin offering? It's so much more than forgiveness. It's purification. It's that we grow more and more into the image of his son. I'll thank my son uh, for 1 Thessalonians 4.7. He brought this up during the week. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. It doesn't say, for God has not called us for impurity, so say you're sorry. No. You know, I'm Italian. I talk with my hands, but that's how I see it. You know, God's not calling us to go this way, but he's also not calling us to stay right here. He's calling us to go this way. And it's actually an awesome thought. Again, I know Paul says don't abuse it, but that he could even use my sin to help me go this way. Right? Not me. You know, should I sin that grace may abound? Of course not, but oh my goodness, I love that the heart behind a sin offering is not just, Lord, please forgive me, please don't kill me, please don't, but please help use this as something that makes me more in the image of your son. All right, so that's my first point, confession. Uh, if you've been following along, you should know that the second point is consumption. There is a unique consumption to each one of the offerings. What was the consumption? Uh, who got to consume a burnt offering? True, thank you so much. And I'm just going to twist that a little bit and say nobody. It was all God's. Agreed? It all got burned up for God because the confession of a burnt offering is, Lord, I'm a sinner. I'm not worthy to be in your presence. So just take it all. Take it all. I don't want it. It's all yours. What was the consumption of a grain offering? God took his token. Remember, his memorial piece. But because a grain offering was a dedication of your things to God, it meant it was a dedication to his work and to his workers. So who consumed the vast majority of the grain offering? The priests. Not the offerer. The priests. You don't get to say, God, I want to give something to you, but I don't want to give it to your workers. It's the same thing. If you're giving it to God, you're giving it to his work. You're giving it to his workers. The peace offering, what did God get? The fat. Because that was considered the best. The priests got the, the breast and the shoulder to represent the heart and the strength of the animal. And who got the rest? The offerer. It's the only offering where the offerer got to, he got the rest and he shared it with everyone who was in the courtyard. That's why it was called a peace offering. Because in the presence of God, they could just sit down and enjoy a meal together. Like, who would ever think you could be in the presence of a God? That's what he wanted. Only for the peace offering, he said, I'll let you consume this one. So what about the sin offering? Did anybody catch who gets to consume on the sin offering? It's a trick question. Your first answer should be no one. We read in chapter 4, again, I went way too fast. I know I did. Go back and read it yourself. But we read that God would get the fat, just like the peace offering. It actually said that, just as in the peace offering. God gets the fat. God gets the rest, the, the best. But 
everything else, like even the skin, at least in the burnt offering, the priest, everything else was to be taken outside the camp and burned on an ash heap. I was reading in a commentary, it must have been so difficult because that was a lot of good pieces of meat that you weren't even like offering up to God so much. You were just taking out and, and burning it outside the camp because it represented sin. Right? It didn't represent the fact that you were a sinner. It represented sin that you were sorry for. God didn't want sin in the camp. So he said, give me what's mine. Give me the fat. Give me the best. The rest of it, out. Kind of like the burn offering, right? So maybe you guys could help me with chapter 6. I don't know if you caught it. I'm going to read it one more time. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons saying, This is the law of the sin offering. In the place where the burnt offering is killed, shall the sin offering be killed before the Lord. It is most holy. The priest who offers it for sin shall eat it. In a holy place it shall be eaten. In the court of the tent of meeting. Whatever touches its flesh shall be holy, and when any of its blood is splashed on a garment, you shall wash that it, which is, it was splashed in a holy place, and the earthenware vessel in which it was boiled shall be broken, but if it is boiled in a bronze vessel, that shall be scoured and rinsed with water. Every male among the priests may eat of it. It is most holy, but no sin offering shall be eaten from which any blood is brought into the tent of meeting to make atonement in the holy place. It shall be burned up with fire. What is going on here? Can they eat it or not? And the answer is yes. Look, I've been studying this. You're not supposed to pick these things up off the top of your head. But remember that whole carry it outside the camp thing? Burn it all outside the camp because God does not want sin inside of his camp? That wasn't for every situation. We actually read four situations in Leviticus 4. Of course, I'm going to review them for you. You can look at them yourself later. It's when a priest sins. It's when the assembly sins. It's when a leader sins. And it's when an individual, a common person, sins. All four of those we read. It's just your head spins because it sounds like you're reading the same thing over and over again. In the first one, you better believe nobody ate of it. That would make no sense at all for the priest to say, Lord, I'm so sorry for my sin, so I'm going to kill this animal, and then I'm going to eat it. Why in the world would you ever benefit from the sacrifice of your own sin? I don't think I have to explain to you that if the priest is the one who committed the sin, nobody's getting that. But then the second part also said, give God what he wants, the fat, everything else out. The second part is pretty much word for word the same as the first part. The only difference in the first part, the priest is the one who's laying his hands on the sacrifice because the priest is the one who sins. In the second part, it was the elders. And we're really not told much about elders in the Old Testament to really know who specifically they were, but they were the ones laying their hands on it. But for those bottom two, it does not say take it outside. So by definition, those are the two that the priests were allowed to eat, and we know that for a fact because of verse 30. I just haven't really gotten there yet. But we know the priests were not allowed to eat of the first two, but they were allowed to eat of the second two. What are we to take from that? And please don't say nothing. God wouldn't have these stipulations if they weren't important. 
Of course the priest should not eat of his own sin offering. He should not benefit from his sin. I hope none of us are trying to do that. All right, Lord, I did something wrong, so how about I'll do this? And really, you're just saying that because <laughs> that's the easiest thing for you to do. No, 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 there needs to be sacrifice. But I think the reason that the priest couldn't eat of the second one is because when you say an assembly has committed a sin, realistically speaking, that does not mean that every single person in the assembly has done it. That just makes no sense. It makes no sense to say, oh, but there's one person who didn't, so that's not an assembly sin. No. Today we wouldn't use the word assembly, we'd use the word congregation. So it's not like I would have to poll every one of you. Franz, have you ever? Sean, have you ever? Shannon, have you ever? No. A congregational sin, an assembly sin, is really just a sin that was pretty much accepted by the people. One that was pretty much okay. We've been in 1 Corinthians in, in Sunday school, and it reminds me of the man who slept with his stepmother. He's the one who committed the sin, but the congregation was called out for it. Not, not, not just the individual. I can't believe that you're okay with this. Even Gentiles aren't okay with this. You're puffed up about this. What's wrong? An assembly sin is really just, I guess what we'd call a respectable sin from that book, right? One that's just because of society or because of bad theology or because of whatever, has just become acceptable. People are doing it. They, they don't even really realize they're doing it. Where does that come from? Where do congregational sins, let's be honest, again, not Sean's sin or Maurice's sin, or no, no, nobody's individual, just in general. Doesn't it come from up here? Doesn't it come from you guys coming in and listening and being told what's right and what's wrong? It doesn't really come from your personal study because then you might study something that Darlene didn't. But if you guys are getting the same message it's coming from me. It's coming from pastor. It's coming from Len. It's coming from Mike. You understand? It's coming from the elders. It's coming from the priests. And that is a big deal to God. I know all of sin is a big deal to God, but I also know that God made it abundantly clear that he wants it dealt with differently. That if it is my sin, I'm just going to say me, you understand I represent leadership. If it's my sin, of course, I don't, I don't, I have to pay. I sacrifice. And if it's your Corporate sin, that's still on me. I get it. And that's kind of hard to, you know, but how could it be any other way? Doesn't James 3 tell us, let not many of you become teachers, for you shall receive stricter judgment? So I know that by being up here, I'd better be saying what's right. Or if it's not right because it was an unintentional sin, and Lord, I thought it meant this, I better get my butt up here and tell all of you that. Because if you leave here thinking something's true in here where it isn't, Eh, it's a little bit on you. Be a Berean. We like to throw that phrase out there. But guess what? It's on me. And I think God made that clear by saying you will not consume of any sin offering that is offered up for yourself, your own sin, or the sin of the congregation, because I trusted you. I made you a steward of that congregation. So please pray for us. Okay? Good. God didn't make you an elder. So God's going to make you what he wants to make you. But if he didn't make you an elder, can you at least pray for the elders? Pray for the leaders that we are not responsible for congregational sins, that we don't get up here and preach things, maybe with the best of intentions. But it, it doesn't go in line with God's word. Again, unintentional sin. God doesn't care if you meant it or not. He actually does. He cares about the heart. But you know what I mean. We don't get, get out of jail free. Ah, that's all right, kid. You didn't mean it. No. 
So it's very important for us as leaders to realize that we are responsible for our sins as well as the sins of the body as a whole. But, oh, thank you, Lord. No offense. I'm not responsible for any of you individually. I'm sorry if you take that the wrong way. But those bottom two, I get to eat. The leader, he only has to offer the top two, male bull. God expects the best. Leader, male goat. So not quite as high as the male bull. And then individual, female goat. Now again, before you say, we only have to give up. You still have to give, you understand? God holds the individual leader at a higher level than the individual. But I get to eat from those. I really think God does that to validate the priests. For the priests who are trying to do their best, and meanwhile, this one's doing this, and this one's doing that, and why isn't anyone listening to me? God's like, don't, don't worry, I got you. I'll let you eat of this. Let me deal with them. You just keep preaching my word. You just keep preaching truth. You just keep making sure that the congregational sins don't occur. I refuse to believe that God's word is going to accurately be preached in this church, and we're still going to end up with an entire body who thinks it's okay to this, and we don't have to this. And meanwhile, God's word is clear. It clearly goes against God's word. That's not going to happen. The Holy Spirit won't let that happen. So when it comes to consuming just how it speaks to me, I'm responsible for my sin. I'm responsible for congregational sin. But you are all responsible for your own sin. And on some level, you might be a leader. A leader in your home, a leader at work. Again, God holds you to a higher standard. And even if you're not, you are expected to offer something up for your sin. So that's what I got uh, from consumption. I know I'm going a little fast, but I just want to get through it. We've got our... Confession, it's one of purification, a desire to be purified. We've got our consumption. Some sin just has to be completely removed. And my next point is going to illustrate this much better. Whereas others are more on an individual level. But my last C, again, i got to give my son credit for this. It actually annoyed me a little bit, but in a good way. I was struggling coming up with a word. And I tell him, you know, generally what I'm talking about, literally two seconds. Well, what about this? I was like, but I thank God. I think God had him say it because it just sums up perfectly the last point I want to make. Again, these three points are the unique ones, right? A sin offering has a unique confession in that it's a desire for purification, not just forgiveness. It has a unique consumption in that sometimes nobody can eat it, but sometimes they can. And it has a unique covering covering. You don't know what I'm talking about? Then you forgot the beginning of the sermon where we said, what a big role blood plays in the sin offering. In the burnt and the peace, it's splashed on the side as a symbol of the necessary blood. But oh my goodness, in here, it is specifically placed in three different places. And again, I'm not turning to these passages. We just don't have time to, but you can go look them up. It is to be, he is to dip his finger in it, the priest, and go up into the tent of meeting, up to the veil, separating the Holy of Holies, and sprinkle blood on it seven times. Okay? That's one place. One place that's supposed to be covered, not just splashed on the sides of the altar, the veil of the sanctuary. Ah, what's seven times? They were doing this so many times a day, so many days, you only went into the Holy of Holies once a year, yes? So, some, the one book I read gave a really good 
we kind of picture that once a year they pulled back a curtain and went in. No, once a year they pulled back a blood-encrusted curtain and walked over blood-encrusted ground just to come into God's presence. Like that, that was powerful to me. I, I, I never stopped to think about that before. But God said, I want it splashed on the veil. He said, I want it placed on the horns of the incense altar. Trying to talk slow. The horns were just symbolic of power. The incense altar was not the burnt offering altar. The incense altar was the altar where they would burn incense, and it represented the prayers or the sweet aroma that would go up to God. I hope you're thinking. Blood on the veil. Blood on the horns of the altar of incense. And then it said the rest of the blood poured around the base of the burnt offering. As you were giving the burnt offering, the blood from sin offerings would be surrounding it. Three different places. Do you want to guess when the veil played a role? Remember, we've got priest, we've got assembly, we've got leader, we've got individual. You think the veil was all four? Just the first two. Just the first two. When the sin was of the priest himself who was going to come into God's presence. Or when the sin was of the congregation which was really on the shoulders of the priest and the leaders. Any time that that sin involved God's minister, God said, you better splash blood on here because you're going to come in here. And you're not coming in here without that blood. The other two, everybody did. Whether it was priest, congregation, leader, individual, blood on the horns. Why? Because it lifts up to God, yes? Doesn't Psalm 66, 18 tell us, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened? Right? Isn't that really what's going on here? In a sin offering, we shouldn't be able to go into the presence of God when we sin. And we shouldn't have communication with him. But that blood, that blood gets spread on the horns, the power of that altar. And then God says, okay, now I'll listen. Right? And then lastly, poured around the base. Poured around the base. Now, maybe pastor can tell me because he's killed animals. Maybe Franz can tell me because he's medical. I don't know. I couldn't find where I read it. But I think this is right. The smallest thing you were going to kill was a female goat, right? That, that was the lowest. Of, that's about four gallons of blood, okay? I, that, that number I remember. You sprinkled a little bit, you, but four gallons were still getting dumped at the base. All the way up to a male bull, which again, if I remember right, was about 16 gallons of blood. That's one offering. One offering! And all they did was sprinkle a little bit and smear a little bit, and the rest just dumped at the base of the burnt altar. I couldn't find anyone who definitively explained that. Every resource I looked at spent more time on talking on how that's even possible. They said, how could you have that much blood? And they said, they probably had like duct systems. Remember when Elijah, right, was going to make that, off, that, that competition with the prophets of Baal? And he said, God will send that. And he said, douse water on the altar. Pour water all around it. It was probably with that idea that there was probably a duct system where you would dump the, the... Remember, there's blood splashed on the sides from the burnt. 
but you would pour everything around that burnt offering and it probably just drained out. We don't know. But oh my goodness, what a beautiful thought. Right? When we voluntarily want to give things over to God, splash it on the side. Give him the recognition that's due. But oh my goodness, even that recognition, we didn't know that. We've read three chapters so far and we had no idea that everything we've been talking about has been surrounded by the blood of a sin offering. Now, stay with me. I'm, I'm done. The veil, right, which represent coming into God's presence. The horns, which represents God still hearing our prayers. And really the foundation of our entire ability to, to offer things up to him. All blood, yes? What am I going to say, Sean? No, not even but. I'll say and. And Christ's blood takes care of all of them. Think about it. Think about it. 2 Corinthians 5.21, this is the last verse I'm going to read. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I never thought much about what that meant, that he made him to be sin. I just figured symbolically it meant the sin was put on him. That phrase is referring to a sin offering. What a beautiful thought. For our sake, he became our sin offering. It makes so much sense. Because why am I allowed to come boldly into God's presence? Because of the blood of Christ. And why am I able to speak with God who's interceding for me? The blood of Christ. And what is the foundation of absolutely everything that I try to do as I try to live a life that honors God and obeys him? The blood of Christ. How beautiful is that? I know, Leviticus couldn't have said that because Leviticus pointed forward and I've been doing my best to stick to what Leviticus says, but oh my goodness, what a beautiful thought. He was our sin offering. He was offered up for my sin. Yes, because I'm a sinner, but more specifically because of my sin. Not, not just while I was born a sinner. Yeah, but guess what? Since then I've committed quite a few sins. And because of the blood of Christ, I can come boldly into God's presence. And I can pray to him and know that he's listening. And I can really serve him and do everything that he asks me to do, knowing that those things are surrounded by his blood. So I hope you were encouraged. We've got one more week. Not next week. We've got our potluck next week. But one more week. If you want to read chapter 5 ahead, go ahead. You'll see a lot more sin offering there. I already said that. What we're going to cover the rest of it, but then we will be done with the five offerings. You're nuts if you don't think I won't be pop quizzing you by then, so uh, brush up on what we've been learning. Look at those notes you've been taking, um, or maybe Christ comes before them, and it won't matter. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you. I, I do. I know this is tip of the iceberg. I know there's so much more that I could have said and maybe should have said, and uh, Lord, all I know is this is where you have me now have me understanding the confessions more, being just touching my heart with the consumptions, Lord, and oh my goodness, I, I know I've sung about your son's blood from the womb, Lord, you blessed me to grow up in a Christian family, but I know I'm never going to fully understand just what that blood did and just how essential that blood was. Thank you. Lord, thank you for giving me Leviticus that I can understand in human terms what you wanted. 
so that I can better understand and eternal ones what your son did for me. So, Lord, again, I, I can only thank you for how you've spoken to my heart and trust that your spirit's doing the same for each one in here. Lord, help us, even now that the sermon's over, help us understand it in a way that, that we hadn't, Lord. That's how you work. I know it is. I'm going to be driving home and think of something that I hadn't thought of over the last month, but that's, that's just you. Your, your word is living and powerful. And I thank you for it, but Lord, I, I do. As Sean so often says, Lord, forgive me of my sins. I know you have eternally, but I, I want it daily. I want it relationally. Lord, I want to not just be forgiven, but to be pure in your sight. And I thank you for this body that you've blessed me with to grow with and, and strive towards that goal. So we give this night to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. So the final song, uh, the track wouldn't download because just because of the weather, but we're going to stand and sing anyway. Um, we have the words. And just so you know, it, you've sung it before. It's, Oh, the blood of Jesus washes me. What a sacrifice. You've sung it before, trust me, once you get into it. So please stand, and we're going to sing it a cappella. All right? Don't worry. Beautiful aroma coming from our hearts right now. All right, sir. You just have all the blood up there. Okay. Oh, the blood, crimson love, price of life's demand. Shameful sin placed on him, the hope of every man. Oh, the blood of Jesus washes me. Oh, the blood of Jesus shed for me. What a sacrifice that saved my life. Yes, the blood, it is my victory. Savior, Son, Holy One, slain so I can live. Oh, see the Lamb, the great I am, who takes away my sin. Oh, the blood of Jesus washes me. Oh, the blood of Jesus shed for me. What a sacrifice that saved my life. Yes, the blood, it is my victory. Oh, the blood of the Lamb, the precious blood of the Lamb. What a sacrifice that saved my life yes the blood it is my victory oh what love no greater love 
Grace, how can it be that in my sin, yes, even then, he shed his blood for me. Oh, the blood of Jesus washes me. Oh, the blood of Jesus shed for me. What a sacrifice that saved my life. Yes, the blood, it is my victory. What a sacrifice that saved my life. Yes, the blood, it is my victory. Once again, what a sacrifice that saved my life. Yes, the blood, it is my victory. Amen. Be safe.